that's how that's how things are going. I lost power. <laughs> yeah, actually, I feel like maybe we should talk yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, um, for anybody who doesn't know, this past weekend, Moore County, which is where Vic and I met, Vic is here in person with me today. Very fun. We don't often get to do this in no. person. So it's it's strange and weird um, no. and very nice to get to look at your face <laughs> as we record. But Moore County was a victim to a domestic terrorist attack and lost power when three different substations were shot at um, and has been now has power back, but only just recently got it back, was out for almost a full week to 40,000 people in North Carolina in December when the temperatures are in the 30s and 40s. And it is cold here, despite yeah. being <laughs> yeah. in the South. It can still get cold. Um, and it's been very rainy. And I, I know it's been a really hard time. So I wanted to talk to Vic about this today while you're here. And yeah. Vic, for those of you who don't know, we met while we were both living in Moore County. We were both teaching at a school out in North Moore County. Um, and I have since moved further up for graduate school, but Vic has stayed in Moore County and is from there. So I would love to hear in your own words a little bit about what happened and what has the experience been like? Yeah. Well, because I wrote a little piece um, in a newsletter that we posted earlier this week that kind of touched base on Yes. We'll link to it. Yeah. We'll link to it. Covered kind of like the broad spectrum of everything, kind of talked about the community coming together, but it's almost, I don't know how exactly to verbalize it. Um, it's a hard thing to put into words. It is. And watching your town, the place that you call home, break national news headlines is also a hard so thing to bizarre. put into words. Because the only time anyone cares about North Carolina in general, but it's specifically my county, is when we have golf. When all the funky little golfers come to town and they do their thing for like a week and then they leave. And then everyone's like, okay, we don't get, we don't care anymore. Yeah. Moore County, um, for those of you who don't know this, is home to Pinehurst, which is pretty much the golf capital of America. Um, yes. And is, is a very interesting county, as most North Carolina counties are in these days in the state, where there's one very wealthy area surrounded mm. by a lot of non-wealthy areas. Yes. Yeah. And the, it, Moore County is where you really see that dichotomy. And especially having worked in the school system, I think we can both say you see that play out most in the, the education aspect. Oh, a hundred percent a hundred percent so and now i still i am still a part of the school system just in a different area i work for a small children's nonprofit that specializes in special needs um and it's a daycare so i'm in the the early part of the education system and then i still get all the updates from moore county so seeing how they were handling it um i don't know just it was hard. I'm trying to I'm trying to find the words because there's really not any words. Mm-hmm. It's all emotions and it's all feelings. Because I remember, like, I was celebrating. We were celebrating my best friend's birthday, and we were watching Lord of the Rings. And, yeah, just a normal evening. Yeah, yeah. And when the power cut off, I and I haven't seen Lord of the Rings, um, which is a sin apparently. Um, and like Gollum was like my precious, and then the power cut off immediately. <laughs> I was like. Is that, is that part of the movie? And Grace is like, no. And I was like, okay. And then my mom immediately texted me. She's like, what'd you do with the power? And I was like, I had nothing to do with it. And we just thought, because it was like stormy early the day. We thought, and, and we, Moore County yeah. is surrounded by longleaf pines, yeah. which frequently fall. And so power outages are yeah. quite common in the area. Yeah. They happen a, a all the time. Small breeze can knock off a branch, which could like knock off power to like half a street. And that's happened to us several times before. We would lose power for a couple hours. So we were like waiting. And then we got the text that we weren't getting it. It back to like Sunday night, and this is Saturday night when this all went out. And I was like, that's annoying, but you know, like whatever. 
And then just waking up and just my little town that no one really cares about except for every four years or however many years when the golf professionals come, you know, is trending on Twitter and um, it's on Fox News. And then with it come all the stereotypes because at the time mm-hmm. and then cnn daily mail oh, new york it times ev- it then everyone. breaks everywhere yeah it yeah. breaks everywhere and it was weird because our local news station wasn't talking about it well and they it was, probably didn't have power yeah to be able to get well they were in they're located uh not specifically in moore county mm. so they didn't like their station to lose power but it was like yeah. Everywhere else, but <laughs> I did have a lot of conversations everywhere. with people in kind of the coming days. So I found out on this all happened Saturday night. I found out Sunday morning through yeah. a text from a friend of mine in California who had sent a Twitter thread, um, which I then sent to our group chat, most of whom are in either Moore County or the surrounding area, and none of us really knew. So it, it yeah. broke national news in a way before it really broke local. But I had a lot of conversations in the days following with people who were kind of around the area, from the area. Mm-hmm. And everyone said, it's funny how you have these very liberal news organizations in the triangle that are not talking about this yes. in the right yeah. way. Um, that, and, and even now, you, you've seen people are saying it's an attack, but nobody is giving any specifics as to what kind. And obviously, you can't name a motive until things are confirmed, but there are pretty clear indicators of why this happened and what it revolves around. And the way that it's being handled is both stereotypical to the South and also mm. not stereotypical at all, I found. Um, but it might be helpful. Do you want to explain a little bit more about kind of what happened leading up to this and, and what some of the things that have been found out since are? Yeah. So coincidentally or not, that's still an ongoing conversation. Uh, a local theater that I volunteer at um, and that has been like this huge part of me as growing yeah. up is the Sunrise Theater. And they were holding a drag show and one woman uh, got a hold of this information. I mean, it's public knowledge. And she just, you know, I don't know if I want to say her name. I mean, the New York Times said her name. I'll say yeah. her name. Her name is Emily. <laughs> I mean, like, her identity is not being made. No, I just don't want to give her any more power than she has already. But it was her. It was her and many other people in the weeks leading up to this that it it kind of all came to a head on Saturday night. But before that, there were weeks of protest and demonstrations Mm -hmm. and people trying their very best to shut all of this down. And yeah, the show did start. Um, I don't think it was able to finish, but I did. um, The audience um, held up their flashlights. And they all sang songs. And I think one of the queens... um, It was Halo by Beyonce. Yes. Yeah. Um, But there was a a good portion of the show. I think each performer at least did one performance. um, From what I know. So at least some of it was able to happen. Mm -hmm. But... Well, I mean, the full full thing happened just in a different capacity. And I think... The, the things that later emerged were a variety of Facebook posts made by the woman we mentioned earlier and a group that she's a part of, which mm-hmm. were basically saying, we know why the power is out. A lot of yeah. indicating that it has a lot to do with the sunrise and the drag show. And I think one thing that stood out a lot to me is that in the following days, the community came together in a really beautiful way. And I yes. also saw a lot of people saying, where was this support in the weeks leading up to this event, though, of not necessarily that you could have prevented it, but also it's beautiful to see our community come together like this. Where were you when we needed you most? Yeah. Yeah. And then I know for a lot of it, people were not taking 
the threats against the Sunrise Theater seriously. Um, which I don't get, but I get mm-hmm. because it's people unfortunately talk, these things because people yeah. talk all the time on social media. You know, constantly there's people spewing hate, there's people making threats, there's people you know trying to organize protests, and it's hard to sift through of what is an actual threat and what is mm-hmm. just people hiding behind a screen. And unfortunately, these things have become quite common in the South in mm-hmm. that a lot of people mm-hmm. just accept it as commonplace. I know the county just above Moore County, which is Lee County, where I worked for a little bit, there's a brewery there that we used to go to frequently, and they had a drag show that the Proud Boys showed up at. Mm-hmm. And there's reports of this in Georgia and in Ohio and I'm, I mean, I'm sure all over. And the scary thing is that the more it becomes common the more it becomes normalized and the more people start to think well yeah that's just what happens in the south which is kind of how we got in to the place that we're in as a region in the first place and so much of the work that i want to do as a person is trying to make it known that these things are not normal and they shouldn't be normal and just because these stories and myths and narratives that we've always told about the region are accepted as normal doesn't mean we have to continue on that way and that we have to learn how to rewrite some of these stories and say, hey, actually, that's not cool. We've changed a fair bit of history through doing that, but we still have a long, long way to go. Oh, 100%. And I'm hoping that with what happened that we will take that as a lesson in several ways of like, okay, what could we have done to maybe – prevent some of that or protect um, the people who are going to that show a little bit more or the organizers. So God forbid, if there is ever a protest and the anger that there is towards another drag performance in the area. And like also there have been other drag performances in the area before. Mm -hmm. This is just for some reason, this is just the one that caught fire. Um, That these, these people that are now, shouting support and here rallying around stay and stick around and they're not doing it just in the moment Mm -hmm. because I feel like there's a lot where just how we consume media and news is it's a hot topic for a couple days and something else happens and we forget and then I've already seen people saying that of like this should be one of the biggest news stories of the year and it's already fading away yeah and even within this I saw just a couple days ago my mother sent to me there's already been more substation attacks Mm -hmm. in Oregon and Washington Mm -hmm. and if this becomes a normal thing, like having the power grid go out, it's a big deal. Um, And it shouldn't be something that we just move on from in the next few days. Even despite, you know, Moore County having power back, it doesn't mean the situation is over, the investigation is over, or that people are okay. Yeah. No, there are still people, you know, who can't pay their bills now because they had to choose between refurbishing their fridge in order to eat or paying their bills, mm-hmm. like once the power comes back Or on. restaurants who had to yeah. throw out all of their food stock mm-hmm. for the next few months. Yeah. Yep. And then also all the businesses, like this is the biggest time for small businesses and businesses in general. It's like the holiday season. Um, so many businesses lost power and lost that foot traffic. Um and not all of them were able to have like an online store portion where mm-hmm. you could support them that way. Like there were so many people that lost a lot of money. And I know of one small business that said that they were kind of floating by and were hoping that the holiday season would kind of bring them back. So we're still trying to recover from COVID. And they said this week could have just completely killed them, killed mm-hmm. their business. And they might have to close depending on how they perform in the next coming weeks. So that's heartbreaking. 
to hear. And that's so frustrating. And there is nothing has been confirmed that the attacks were because of the drag show. But I think you cannot overlook that they happened at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, f- like, I feel like that's just not something that you can overlook. And Even if that's dismiss. not the sole reasoning, there's some sort of connection there that yes. spurred these attacks. And I think yes. that's what I understand why the news outlets can't name that. I, I get that. I yeah. get that these are official sources. However, it can't be overlooked, this connection that's there. No, and 100%. in Moore County and everywhere else, it's been really interesting for me, having lived in Moore County and now I'm living in Durham, um, a lot of the performers who were working the drag show mm-hmm are from Durham. And mm-hmm. so there's been a lot of organizing around here. And it also makes me question how many of these organizations that are doing a lot of great work now in the aftermath would have necessarily cared about Moore County before, before this happened. Yes. And it's like, do do we have to care about someone or something after something bad happened? Mm-hmm. Like, is that, like, why can't we show compassion? Why can't we, like, lend a like, hand? Why can't we uplift these stories and these voices and these people before something bad happens? And then, you know, it comes back to resources of they may not be able to have the money to, like, advertise what they're doing or really, like, spread awareness of mm-hmm. any organizations. Um, so I hate that it takes something bad for certain voices to finally, like, be heard. Um, but it's like, what can we do before then? Like you were saying. So it doesn't have to be the bad thing that gives them their megaphone or their little soapbox. There's been a lot of talk now about how the new battleground for LGBT issues in this country is becoming rural and southern spaces. Mm -hmm. And that if you really want to be a good ally, um, whether you're in this community or not in this community, you have to be able to show up for people in those spaces Mm -hmm. because it's not enough anymore to just exist in these urban areas. The battleground now is really... How can we make these places, if not safe, at least comfortable? Um, yeah. But ideally, we can move towards a point of safety for everybody. But it all goes back to like the idea of metronormativity and that there are so many stories of queer people that just get erased in rural spaces. Mm. And it, 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 that's not how the facts show. You know, we've had a lot of questions lately of, well, you talk a lot on this podcast about the queer South, and I don't believe there's that many queer people. And and I'll link to the data here, but there there are data portraits that the South has the highest queer population of anywhere in the country. It's 35%. Um, the Northeast is 19%. I think the Midwest is still even more than the Northeast. And you just don't get those stories. It's not that people aren't telling them and it's not that people aren't living them. It's often that media isn't interested in giving them a platform. And so, so much of the work that we do here with Good Folk and why we talk about this kind of stuff a lot is because it's really integral to when we're thinking about artists' role in the South right now and in rural spaces, most of that is reimagining and rewriting and giving people the hope that we don't have to live the same narratives that we've lived Mm -hmm. before. We can do it differently. But in order to do that, we're going to need strong community and strong organizers and strong artists who are willing to help write these narratives because they have to be they have to be written differently and imagined differently before we can ever get to the point of actually having them be our reality. Yeah. And then if you're coming from an out if you're coming to the south from somewhere else, show up without your prejudices, show up without your stereotypes, because that is going to do in the long run more harm than good. Because mm-hmm. we have to fight that in our own homes every day. Yeah. And that was another thing that was frustrating to see. The people that they interviewed, to no fault of their, like the interview, um, interviewee's. interviewee's fault, 
but they showed like so, like people in trailer parks with heavy southern accents um in rusted out cars and you know not dressed in a way that they probably should be for an interview you know like lots of that's what I'm looking for. I don't know. One of the ladies wasn't wearing a bra. And I was like, don't do that to her. Do not put her on national TV in her house when she is comfortable. But then to lead a stereotype of where these attacks are coming from or like, mm-hmm. like happening to. I was like, we're such, you know, like don't, I don't know. That just made me sick to see the people. The stereotype rural communities in yes. that way can be fair. Even if that's people's lived experience, it's, um, yeah. it's still, you know, that's making national news outlets. And then everybody can say, I, the amount of comments that I saw of people like, well, that's what you get for being mm-hmm. queer in the South. And it's like, it just shouldn't be that. No. Um, it shouldn't be that in order. I mean, and I feel like I say this all the time, but the choice should not come down to your home or your identity. Yes. It really should. You should, everybody, no matter what identity you have, should have the ability to be who they are in the place that they were raised in. Yeah. And then the people that say like, that's what you get for being queer in the South. That just almost like spits in the face of all the queer organizations and nonprofits and resources in the South that do mm-hmm. amazing work every day. Um, the Sandhills Pride, they are the ones that put on the drag show. They do scholarships for queer kids. They have, they throw all these events. Um, they do trivia nights. They, you know, do drag shows outside of this one. They, they're just, I don't know. I really love what they do. And I'm friends um, with the director, Lauren. Um, we run into each other all the time and just every, just the happiest person you could be. And you can tell that she really loves what she's doing. She really cares about all of these people, like the queer people and the allies in the community. Um, so when people say like, that's what you get for being queer in the South or like, there's no queers in the South that you're saying of. And I'm like, mm-hmm. how, how dare you? How dare you? It is a really hard time to be an organizer of any kind in this region, mm. but especially an organizer in these types of issues where so many of the people who are, you know, you and I included, it's like we're doing this for our younger selves, right? To create yes. a space that we didn't feel like we had. And so it is personal. Or didn't have access to. Or didn't have access to. Yeah, it is. And it is something that you feel deeply attached to. And it it is so hard and so scary. And all this is to say that, you know, we wanted to come on here and, and have this episode because this is the time that we have the platform to be able to ask that you go and support these organizations and these people who are doing this work because it is scary and exhausting and difficult. And oftentimes it feels thankless in that you are working against the external communities and the internal communities and your own prejudice about the place you grew up from and feeling like you're not doing enough because maybe you're doing it here and that wasn't the dream you had at eight years old. Mm -hmm. And to your point about people who moved down here, like we're happy to see that people want to come and move to the South. And I I can see no problem with that. What I find somewhat of a problem with is when you get a lot of people who are moving in mass to cities like Charleston or Charlotte or Asheville, and then they only want to work within that urban center itself. And Mm -hmm. there are so many people, especially here in the Triangle or in, in so many of these urban North Carolina centers that are very, very blue and very, very liberal, that are surrounded by really rural communities and people don't want to engage with them or interact with them. And, you know, Moore County is only an hour south of Raleigh, which is the state capital. And we have these kind of centers and havens for safety, but it can't just stop there. It can't just be an urban area in the South. It's it's really been nice to see in a lot of ways, especially like I'll shout out Bitter Southerner here, I think does a great job with this, an Oxford American of organizing and centering voices in the South, 
many of those voices, though, still exist in urban areas. And Mm -hmm. it can't just be that, right? We can't just be hosting readings in Durham and Chapel Hill and Raleigh and Asheville. We also need to be hosting readings in so many of these other counties and so many different towns and places and creating access to the arts that isn't urbanized. And it's not to say that we have to get rid of urban arts. I think it's a, a proponent for arts in all forms, but it can't stop there. And, you know, we see this play out in elections of you have very, very urban centers and it's pretty clear how they're going to go. And then meanwhile, the areas surrounding them are going further and further the opposite direction Mm -hmm. because people don't feel like they're being listened to. And they often feel like they're being pushed out because as urban centers grow and prices rise, that starts to extend to the suburbs, which then start to spread further and further and further out. So people feel that they're being pushed out of their communities that there's not a place for them and that the people who are pushing them out don't want to engage. Yeah, they could care less. And that's the other thing we have in the past couple of years, such a big boom in population because Moore County is also near the really big uh, military station, Fort Bragg. So we have a lot of families just all of a sudden out of nowhere from everywhere in the United States moving here. And there has been a lot of new conversations that I have to find myself having in grocery lines um, of like, oh yeah, I'm from Connecticut and I just, I don't know, I was talking to a lady that owned, you know, this store and I couldn't understand her. Like, don't you hate it when that happens? And because I don't have a Southern accent or like one that's, I guess, noticeable, um, they think that I'm like, like, oh, you don't have a Southern accent, so you you must be like me. Don't you just hate it when people talk in like the dialect that they grew up with? Ugh, how annoying. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. And the thing they don't know is that many of us had accents and purposely lost them because we felt shameful that I had a really deep accent as a child. And most of my family has deep Southern accents. And I trained myself out of it because I thought that I would never want to stay here. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to blend and shift into other spaces. And I think all the time, like what I would do to have that accent back. Yeah. It's just in... So I'm not even from the South. All my family is from New England, um, Connecticut, Maryland area. Moved to Colorado. I was born in Colorado. Moved to Moore County when I was young, six, seven years old. Um, And I remember very early on, my mom said, you will keep your G's. I was like, what does that mean? She's like, you will keep, you will say the whole word. (laughs) Nothing. Something. And I'm like, okay. And so she showed up with a lot of, you know, stereotypes and prejudices to the South we were moving. She also did not want to move to the South. That's a whole other thing. Um, it can be internalized too, though. Yeah. Like, I'm like a, probably like a seventh or eighth generation North Carolina. I don't even know at this point. We're like, yeah. we don't know what we were before we were yeah. here. But, you know, we're, we've been here for a while. And my, I remember my mom, when I was a kid, would tell me like, well, if, you were, if you're serious about wanting to move to New York and work in the writing world mm-hmm. and do all of that, like you can't say that. And still yeah. will correct the way I say things. To this day. Yeah. And it's and, and it doesn't make yeah. you any less smart. That was the other thing. When we were working in um the schools that we were working for, they were in the northern part of Moore County, which is the very rural farmland, um, large um Hispanic and immigrant population. Um, often gets looked over and forgotten that it's even part of Moore County. A whole other conversation. But with that, a lot of, you know, what people think of, oh, the good old boys going hunting and shooting. Heavy Southern accents, you know, all that good fun stuff. And having to hear my kids think that, there's like, why I'm not smart? And I'm like, where's that coming from? I was like, well, I sound funny. 
you know, my house, you know, doesn't have electricity half the time because we can't pay the bills. Like my dad works at a gas station. I was like, we have no worth. Why should I care about, you know, where my education is going? Why should I care about what I'm going to do in the future? Like from every outside source, even in their own People are going to judge me no matter what. They're going to judge me. Why should I try? Why should I care? You know, and that's why a lot of people, I think, don't leave certain communities in the fray, you know, like, I'm sure there's layers to it, but no one wants to be judged for, like, how they are and who they are. Like, that's, no one wants that. So I have, I had a lot of these kids who was like, I'm never leaving. And I was like, one, because I can't. And two, because why would I? Everyone is just going to think I'm dumb or they're going to hate me or they're going to think I'm weird because of where I grew up and how I grew up. And on every platform and, you know, that these kids look up to, that's, you know, the Southerner is always shown as a stupid one or they're shown as one they can't understand or the one that needs subtitles. <laughs> I was talking to somebody the other day and we were saying we spend a lot of time these days like fighting people in TikTok comments yes! because it's so it's so frustrating. And this goes back to what we we're saying of like support. I'm I'm not going to advocate and say that everybody should stay in the South. I don't yeah. I don't think that's not the right decision for everybody. To. I don't think everybody's meant. To. I think it's if you feel that for your own happiness and safety you have to leave this place. Like trust me, I understand. And I also want to say that like I don't think I would have the career or the opportunities that I do now had I not left for a little mm-hmm. bit. I think it was that act of leaving that in a way made me want to come back and do this. And I also know that that's a very privileged position that not everybody has access to. But I I don't want to ever be promoting the myth that everybody should just stay Stay here and you should all stay in your hometown. Like for me, staying in the South has been really great. Staying in my hometown would not be. Yes. And I I think you have to figure that journey out for everybody. But it is still – there should be some sort of understanding in social media that – you don't have to stay in the South, but that doesn't mean that everybody who chooses to is not taking full advantage of their life or overlooking meaning. And especially in the arts of this is, there are so many arts movements that survive and thrive and exist in these spaces. And that have historically been really rooted to the South. And I mean, almost every musical tradition and so many literary traditions come directly from this place. Mm. And we can't just ignore that and, act like anybody who wants to be an artist can't do it here. Um, But we also aren't often told those histories. Yeah. They're overlooked or they're intentionally forgotten about, or they don't follow a certain ideology of like what's preferred. Like Hollywood, like Hollywood could care less about the South, but a lot of their history is from here and a lot of the performances that they do like acting singing music that thrives on the west coast started mm-hmm. in the east coast mm-mm. they would never never i mean yeah drag balls came out of a play on debutante balls and yeah. were the first drag ball ever was held by a former enslaved man in maryland yes oh hollywood over her dead body <laughs> <laughs> there are so many and, and i want to give a shout out here to all of the amazing authors that many of you, if you're listening, you know I interact with and follow you and I'm always liking your stuff. And I'll put a whole list in the comments, but there are one thing that's been really amazing of coming back and especially now that I'm, I'm in school to get a degree in this field is realizing so much of what you thought you were alone in creating is being done. And there are really amazing people who have been 
writing these books and putting this stuff out and making this music and doing the work and they may not be getting the media attention but there are so many books that i will read and i'm like i would sell my soul to have that on netflix right yes. there's a book i'm reading right now called um summer suns by an author named lee mandelo that is just like i feel like this book was like tailor-made for me it's about a master's student in American studies and folklore at a Southern university. And it's like a queer Appalachian Southern Gothic. And for those of you who read the newsletter, you'll know that I've been at work for like almost three years now, but it's taken a variety of shapes and forms. Um, and it has landed on like a neo Southern Gothic steampunk climate change novel mm -hmm. investigating like queerness and Southern cowboy culture and all of these things. And so there are people who are doing it and, and it's just about getting the eyes and, when I think about the role that I want to play in the world, like that is it. It is being, I wrote about this not long ago for the newsletter, but it's being that connector. It is finding the people who are already doing this. Like you don't need me to come in and do it. At the end of the day, like I don't need to be the one to come in and write these stories and uncover this stuff. Like this stuff is being done. Mm -hmm. It's just getting people's eyes on it. And if anything we can do with good folk is that, like that's the number one role we want to play. Yeah. Hunt. A hundred percent. So I guess that answers my question of like, why did you start Goodfold? Was because <laughs> because of that. Because I remember sitting in our classroom after our students left and we had a small cry session because our eighth graders drove us up a wall. Um, and we just questioned our sanity. We would just sit there. I remember picking out the color scheme, um, going through the markers that um, the teacher had in the room or just scribbling the papers like, oh, I like those two colors. Oh, I like those two jellies together. And you just talking about this dream that you had, I was like, I want there to be a platform and I want there to be like the sole source that just is just like just holding everyone up. It's like, here's all their hard work. Please pay attention to them and love them because they deserve it so deeply. And just being kind of like that stepping stool mm -hmm. of a voice. Um, I don't know. And I'm just. Yeah. The or I mean, the origins for Good Folk actually <laughs> predate that extensively. Um, yeah. But that was, I think, when I really made the decision to stop talking saying, about it. And yeah. I'm it. just saying, well, I'm, screw it. Yeah. I'm doing it. I'm sitting down but and doing it. The origin story really goes back to like 2018-ish. Um, I would have been, what, a sophomore in college. And I did my undergrad at Barnard in New York City, which is a wonderful place. It maybe was not the best place for me, but it is a wonderful place. And I was writing a lot about the South. I was starting to kind of get into these stories. I was really into the Southern Gothic. I've always kind of been, but I was really leaning into that a lot in my work. I was a creative writing, human rights, and English major. And I was reading a lot of different Southern stories. And I was also just getting increasingly frustrated with the way that people would ask me about home or talk to me about home and the way that it would feel like such a disconnect of when I would go back to visit home and when I would be in school. And, you know, there were three of us from South Carolina in my graduating class and we kind of all knew each other, but it's crazy when you think about that. And then I remember I kind of came up with the project of wanting to create a platform that would publish Southern stories very much originally in the early vein of like something like an Oxford American or bitter Southerner, which of course at the time I didn't really know that either of those existed. <laughs> I was, because based on the reactions that my peers were having towards my work, I was kind of convinced at the time that I was the only one doing this mm. because I didn't have the representation. I didn't have knowledge. And part of this is on me of maybe I wasn't doing great research, but also this kind of stuff just wasn't coming across my desk or my laptop. I was working in publishing. 
I was reading all these books and I wasn't getting access to anything I felt like I could relate to. So I started doing that and felt like, okay, if nobody else is doing it, I'll just have to do it. And then the reactions that I was getting from professors and peers made it seem like, yeah, nobody else is doing this. You know, mm-hmm. the only thing that everybody knew from the South was hillbilly elegy. And mm-hmm. I would, yeah, <laughs> which is not, it's not the compliment you think it is. Many of you have heard my rant about this. I'm not even going to get into it. Um, but if you know, you know. And if you don't, email me. <laughs> but I would have professors who were like, you have to do that. Like, you have to, you have an obligation to tell these stories because no one else is telling them. And in my, like, 19-year-old brain, I'm like, yes, that feels right. That feels important. This is my role and my duty, and this is going to be my whole thing. And I look back on it, and I'm like, that's so narcissistic because, of course, people were doing this. And what I really should have said to those professors is like, well, can you connect me with people who I could talk to that are doing this? But at the time, it made it feel like, oh, nobody else is, so you have to come in and do this. So I had this idea that I would go and start this whole platform, and I'd already launched a couple of literary magazines at that point. And so I was like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I work in publishing. Like, this is fine. We're going to have this literary magazine. It's going to publish all these Southern stories. And I, I just kind of envisioned it for a while. And I came up with the name from a random name generator because I had no idea what to call it. I'm so awful with titles and names. I've written entire books without naming them. And the name will usually come from like one odd line that like ends the piece. And the book I'm working on now has had like four different titles, but it is not changing, but it is sticking with the title that it has now. And you all can hold me to that. But um, I was sitting in a coffee shop in Harlem and I remember it was, it was really cold and I was working with a friend of mine at the time who was from Ohio. We were kind of plotting out this idea of filming a documentary and we were getting really interested in rural studies and Midwestern studies and Southern studies and I was like, okay, we need a name for this. And I was thinking about the idea of folk and the perception that's usually associated with that. This was like way before I got into folklore. And and now I'm a folklorist and I had no idea that my life would even take that direction. But I remember typing folk into a random name generator and just trying to come up with something. And I remember good folk came up and I was like, I kind of like that. It's kind of catchy. And the funny part is I texted it to everybody I know. And almost everybody was like, I'm not sure. I don't know how I feel about that. And It grew on people very slowly because I was like, I think I like it, but I can't say why. And I went ahead that day. I bought the URL right then. And um, then I later sold it because everybody went bankrupt during COVID. And then now I rebought it. And that is why we are goodfolk.substack and goodfolksonly.org is because (laughs) I can can no longer purchase. I owned it for like four years. And then um, when I was unemployed, I had to sell like everything that I was paying for. So I sold it back then. So we're we're good folks only now, but um, it's like a secret club. So I think it's kind of fun, but I did. I bought the URL that day and I I stuck to it and slowly everybody came around and then it kind of just became this idea and this thing. And I thought at the time I was like, maybe I'll publish an anthology of work um, or maybe I'll write an essay collection was kind of really what I was thinking. I was a creative nonfiction student. So I was like, yeah, I'll write a collection of essays about like rural life and I'll call it good folk and this will be my whole thing. Um, And then I had the opportunity to study abroad and travel and it was really doing that kind of ethnographic research abroad that I really learned, like, I need to go back and do that kind of research mm-hmm. and work in the place that I'm from. Um, and it was a lot of the conversations that I was having with people around the world about the South and about what it meant to be from the South and what what home looked like. I was, you know, I was asking all these other people about their home and people would turn it back on me and they'd say, well, tell me about your home. And I, I remember in that moment being like, I have to go back and I have to do this. Yeah. Um, and then it took a while. 
I went back to college. I worked in Canada for a little while. I worked, I, I worked in a lot of rural spaces, but I kind of had this idea that I knew I would come back south one day, but I didn't feel like I was ready to do it yet. Mm. I felt like I was 21. And if I went back, I was going to give up on all this stuff I had worked really hard for my whole life. And this was the thing that like for 20 years, I had wanted to move to New York City and be a writer. And like now I was doing it. And if I walked away from that, I felt like I was walking away from a part of myself. And so I I didn't want to. I wanted to stay in New York and I wanted to write about the South, but I didn't want to have to be there. Mm. And um, I had planned that I was going to go travel after college. I had saved up a ton of money. I'd been working like crazy. I had this whole route. I was going to go back to Canada for a little while and then over to Europe and then hopefully down to like Australia and visit some friends there and, you know, be doing a lot of things with writing. But I, I knew I would go back south eventually, but I was really, really sure that it wouldn't be then. And then COVID hit. <laughs> um, and then COVID hit and I went home for what was supposed to be three days of spring break. I, I had a full-time job for the most part in New York City. So it was like, I'll go home for the weekend of spring break. And then I was supposed to fly back. And, and even when quarantine started happening, I was like, oh, well, I'll fly back and just quarantine from my apartment. You know, my job is there. My friends are there. And then my flights just kept getting canceled. And I remember it being really bizarre because in a lot of ways, you know, the world was falling apart, but I was just so happy to be home and to not feel, to have this outside force that forced my brain to not feel bad about it, to be like, I'm home and I'm really happy here. And there's all these things in place that make it so that I actually can't leave right now. And it like tripped my brain up in a very strange way. And it was like, everything was so bad, but I also felt so at peace with being where I was and wanting to be there and being like really genuinely happy. And I was writing a ton. I was reading a ton. I started the book I'm still working on now. I started it right during those early days of COVID. Um, and I was I was finishing up my senior thesis, which was an essay collection of life in rural places that was not titled Good Folk. It was um, the title was All These Rural Places, which came out of a line on an essay on queerness and Tiger King and metronormativity that later turned into um, an article that I published for Long Reads. So that was where that was like the origin story of where it happened. And then I was living in Charleston. Um, it was just me and my mom. It's always kind of just been me and my mom for the most part. But we were quarantining together in Charleston. And I I knew that I was not going to get to travel internationally. So I was kind of giving up on those. And I, I had no idea what I was going to do. I just knew that I didn't want to go to New York. I did still have my house there. I mean, I had an apartment full of stuff and I had to fly up and put it all in storage. And I, for like my entire senior year of college, I remember holding on to this vision that I would drive out of the city. I would I would finally have a car because I had missed having a car so badly. And I was like, <laughs> I'm going to pack my car full of stuff and I'm going to drive out of the city and like watch it fade into the rear view. And it's going to be May and everything's going to be green and it's beautiful. And I was going to play Going Up the Country by Can't Heat, have my like into the wild moment. And I like held on to that vision. I one thing that happened for me in New York is I got really, really deeply depressed for almost the entire time I was there. And some of that was tied to the city. A lot of that was tied to a variety of other things. But that was the thing that I would hold on to of like, when this is all over, you're going to get to drive out of this place and say goodbye to it in the way that you've envisioned and you've imagined. And that's how you're going to start this like new phase of your life. And of course, that was not how it happened. I flew back during the height of the COVID pandemic in New York City and had to box up my whole apartment and put everything in storage. And it was very scary and stressful. And I flew back next to people in hazmat suits and 
it was one of the strangest experiences of my life. And I didn't go back for two years. Um, but while I was back in the South, I applied for a job to work as a teaching artist, did not get the job, had no idea what I was going to do. I had signed up to go like woof for a while and like live on a school bus and work on a farm, um, which sounded like a great idea. I was like, this is going to be really good for me. And then the job later came back to me and they were like, a spot has opened up, but you'd have to move next week. Um, and it was in Moore County. And I didn't know anything about Moore County. I'd never been there, but I knew it was North Carolina. And I, I grew up half in North Carolina and half in South Carolina. So I was like, great, that's close enough to home. And at the time with COVID, I was like, oh, teaching, like that's all going to be virtual. Like I'll go and I'll get an apartment, but then I'll be able to like come back to Charleston all the time. I'll just like teach from <laughs> Charleston. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to laugh now because that was part, when I took the job, part of it was like, oh yeah, like I don't know anything about Moore County. I don't really know anybody yeah. there, but I won't have yeah. to be there. I like, have, that's... I'll just have to have an apartment, but then I can like, oh, schools, yeah, I was like, schools oh, will go virtual after like two weeks and then I'll be able to come home. And um, yeah, that's not what happened. We we were never virtual and we were, we were in person the whole year. And I will say it was really hard for about six, for six months, I was by myself living alone for the first time ever in a pandemic, in a job that I didn't know anything about teaching. I had never been a teacher in a school district that was all in person in a world that was talking all about how hard virtual and remote learning is working with colleagues in New York and Philadelphia who were having a vastly different experience and working with people who now are some of my best friends. But initially, you know, we were all yeah. going through a lot. None of us really it we took a while. on our own little sad yeah. journeys at that time. Yeah, it took a, it took a while. <laughs> um, we all met at a really strange time in our lives, I think. And mm -hmm. so for the most part, it felt like spending six months in a place that was really beautiful, but that I had no connection to. And I just felt so isolated. And I remember feeling like this is how you felt in New York. And you thought coming back south. I remember having this idea when I was really, really depressed. And I was like, oh, well, so much of this is just the city. Like, I just don't work in the city. If I can just get out of here, then that'll fix it all. And it was like one of the best and worst things to ever happen to me to like get out of the city and realize like, oh, I'm, I'm still like this. Like, yeah. I still feel this way, which then maybe it's something. Yeah, maybe it's something me. that I need to work on. So then that led to a lot of like really deep internal reflection and a lot of writing and a lot of time alone in the woods, as most people <laughs> seem to do when you're going through something. Um, but I think it was also the best thing that ever happened to me. And then eventually... You know, I, I fell in with a really wonderful group of people who, Vic being one of them, um, and people who really showed me what this place could be and what the life that I could have within it and, and made me feel really, for the first time, super comfortable with who I was and that my life had purpose and my life had value and all of that could still be true and be true in this place. Yeah. And so I think that was really when Good Folk, which had been an idea in my mind for like four years, when I really was just like, you know what, we just have to do it. And Substack had just started, not, you know, everybody was getting on Substack in 2020. Like it was a huge, fun, cool thing. And so I was like, you know what, like, let's just do it. Let's just make this Substack. And we didn't even really know, like, I knew I wanted to talk about the South, but I was like, I'm going to write this newsletter about like empathy and community and all things which we talk about often. Um, but I didn't even really plan. I was like, it'll be about like rural spaces and like empathy in rural spaces. But I wasn't even really set on like, this is a newsletter about life in the South mm -hmm. and the kinds of people who exist here and can exist here. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was the very drawn out story of, of how it came to be. It's beautiful. <laughs> and it's been, it's been really cool to witness of like, since, since then it, it was a very slow year of me just writing things and, and uncovering a lot of stuff about myself and, yeah. 
getting really, really, really comfortable with who I am as a person, um, which led me to publish in some larger outlets and start getting some pretty big attention, which was really cool, and meet some really amazing people. And then apply. I, I applied to go back to graduate school. Um, and I'm, I'm doing a, lo- a lot of the work of my thesis is really tied to what we do here with this newsletter and has really taken this in a lot of new directions that there's so much I can't even tell you. <laughs> that is, say. there's so much in the works that's like so wonderful and exciting and I can't talk about any of it. Um, but please stay tuned. And yeah, and then and then we had the podcast and that's just brought some really incredible people into this community. And even right now we're sitting here and, and in like two hours, Vic and I are going to go see some people that we had on the podcast yeah. perform and do, and get to hang out with them in person. And it's, yeah, it's just really, really been beautiful. Yeah, I truly do not know who I would be or where I would be without one initially meeting that group of teachers that we all were. Like that's because I I joined in six months after everyone started. I was halfway through. Yeah. But you so were I big, came I in think as you like, were the a new, like, guy, and I was like, hey, <laughs> we were all we were all friends. But then you and I gelled pretty quickly, yeah. and then that I think really. Friday nights watching the show. You brought together the Katie's. Oh my God, my (laughs) ego, guys. Um, But those Friday night at Katie's little golf condo apartment that was a hotel turned apartment. So we had all the hotel furniture. (laughs) In an abandoned golf course. Um, Yeah, we would take our little silly walk. Very straight out of The Shining, we would walk around these like abandoned golf courses for hours and it would just be like, foggy and there were always bunnies everywhere yeah. there you never would see another person it was like the epitome of like rural southern yes. gothic of this you is a very Katie. haunted place yes, and we always love walk, it power walk and you would be miles ahead and i'm a slow walker and wiley would just indulge me and walk with me and i'd be like they are insane um and i just remember because covid it was a dark time for everyone I mean, I didn't want to move back home. You were like, oh, you know what? Home. Like, you like, through that time, you're like, oh, I mean, I don't know that I, it was like, I think internally, like subconsciously, yeah. subconsciously, it was the only thing I wanted and I wouldn't admit it to myself. Yes. Which is kind of the core for like most things I want yeah. in my life. Like, I, I tend to want a lot of things that I refuse to admit that I want. But yes. <laughs> yeah. That's a larger conversation. <laughs> the only thing I really know that I want is that I want to have good folk and to have this community yes. and to connect with these people. And so yes. that I will be very open about. Everything else, you know. Yeah, I'm take some digging. Yeah, you got to do some digging. Yeah, and, you know, there's song lyrics and Instagram posts. And I don't know. I'm, very, I'm a writer to my core. So I'm always sneaking little messages into things. Yeah. I remember my mom asking. She was like, you came home in 2020. Hated it. It's very upset. Very depressed. And she's like, and then you started teaching and hanging out with these, like, group of, like, artists and like weirdos mm-hmm. and people that you have never met in your life before and she was i've never seen you so happy i've never seen you so excited to be home and i would and flag like, for you too like the difference happened? is i left the state but you didn't even actually leave the state you yeah. just went to one of these very urban areas yes. of the state yeah I went and to it still feels like it's like a whole different world a whole different world and i was like wow <gasps> like, this is crazy and i didn't want to leave greensboro i was gonna live there I, Greensboro's know, great. I greensboro um and then coming back home and just having to do a lot of self-discovery. Shout out Nicole, my therapist, who helped me through that. Um, but really the catalyst of just being like not fighting against the stereotypes of what I thought a successful artist and a successful person had to be. I thought you had to leave your town. I thought I had to go to some big city. I thought to be an artist, you had to go somewhere big, cool, and neat like New York. Um, you know, so just coming back and meeting you and that group of people and doing that, the teaching, the way we did it, just maybe be like, oh, no, mm-hmm. I can be comfortable at home. I can be, you know, like this is 
This is my community. And to this day, I still have people ask when I'm going to leave. And my response is, I don't know. But for the time being, this is where I'm meant to be. And I will stay here until the wind whispers to me or the town is like, I fulfilled what I needed to do for myself in this town. Um, And then sooner or later, I know I'm going to end up in the mountains. Where? Mm -hmm. When? Uh At the Good Folk Center for Creative Collaboration. I I spend a lot of time on Zillow looking at property. But no, to your point, though, I think when something that I think about often is that life will bring you the right people, even if you can't see it at the time. Yes. I love our friend group. And I also it took a while, I think, for us to really get there. And I I couldn't say I just remember feeling so lonely for so long here. And even now, like. I still live alone, which I never plan to do. And I spend a lot of time by myself. And sometimes I'm just like, what am I doing? And then other times I'm like, that is the time that I have to recuperate to then be able to put myself into all these projects. But you will end up in the places. It's like now I can look at our friend group and I can see how every single one of us has really grown into like such a beautiful version of ourselves and how so much of that was really tied to like the place and the place in our lives that we were Mm -hmm. in where we met. Um, and you just never know. You, I think it, it can feel so strange and so isolating and life can be so hard and lonely sometimes. And you can say, you know, I have these people, I have these connections, but I'm just by myself all the time. Like, what am I doing? Where is this going? And I do really like fundamentally have to trust that there's a purpose and a path and that if you were in a period of isolation, it will not be forever. And there mm-hmm. is a reason for it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like for me, sometimes I'm like, God, I've been lonely for like eight years. And then I'm also like, but look at all the things I've created. Yeah. That when I'm with people all the time, I'm I'm fulfilled when I'm doing that. But I don't write anything. Yeah. I don't make anything, right? It's finding that, that balance. It's finding that balance. Yeah. Fulfillment. I think I need to move away a little bit from like, I spend a lot of time alone and I'm just yeah. like working all the time. And I'm, that is something that I'm like actively trying to do now. But you have to find the balance. But I do think that there's a reason for, mm. for the way things play out. And I can see it now looking back on the last two years of my life. But the last two years of my life, I could never have pictured where it would end up. Yeah. One of the one of the main things my mother said to me growing up, whether it was about relationships, about myself or, you know, situations, like however it was, she goes, you will look back in five years and you will be so excited to see how far you came. She goes, it will come. Whatever you are looking for, it will come. Maybe not in the way that you thought it would, but it will come and it will fulfill you mm-hmm. in like ways you never thought it would happen. And it's true. And everything that's happened, it has been worth the wait mm-hmm. of waiting it out, of like being like, this isn't worth it. Or like, I'm not meant to be here doing this. Or like, I'm doing this wrong. Like it it was worth the wait. And like, mm-hmm. I think Good Folk is such a perfect example of that. Um, oh my gosh. Like the four years I spent theorizing this project. Yeah. And then what's happened in the past, so I don't know, two weeks? Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say, even now, like, so much of the stuff that we're moving towards with Good Folk, a lot of that is because I've spent the last six months of graduate school, like, Mm -hmm. theorizing and writing out proposals and envisioning, like, if I had unlimited money and time and (laughs) space at my disposal, what could this be? And what's been wild is then watching all of that, like, now that I've really created this plan and really spent like years and years theorizing, okay, how is this going to work? And what am I really trying to build? Yeah, I'm watching it without even really having to put a ton of effort in. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's really happening. And 
you know, I just want to say a huge shout out to every single one of you who listened to this because we, you know, we, we don't know what we're doing half the time. <laughs> Like so much of this is just, just be talking to ourselves. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but that's what I'm saying. So much of this is about this voice that I feel like I've had that is talking only to myself. That's mm-hmm. totally alone. And that I'm the only one who feels this way and who understands these things. It's putting that out there in a way that it's like, all right, here I am on a mic talking about like my deep fears and traumas and goals and wishes. And then somebody's sending me an email and saying like, I really resonate with that. And that really helps me. And yeah. building that community and learning that like, you are not alone in how you feel no matter how much it feels that way in the moment. It's like, that's all it is. Yeah. And it's it's just like, if nothing else, good folk is like, you know, we've published stories, we've published writing, whatever. Like, that's all cool. All this is, is trying to be a voice in the darkness reaching out for other voices. Yes. That it's, I am tired of hearing only my own voice, right? Like, so, so much of my own artistic interest is in like creative collaboration, which, you know, you hear about all the time on this podcast, but it's, what would a book look like if instead of one author, it was like 12, right? We talk like every band of musician. It's like so much of that is good because it is people coming together. How might these other art forms look like that? And what can that say about this place that we're in? If we can bring people together to write these versions, because when we talk, we, you know, we were talking earlier about rewriting this narrative of the South, nobody should be writing that narrative alone, right? It can't only be one voice writing that story. Mm-hmm. It has to be all of these voices together. And that's what we do here is we, we bring those voices together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're listening, stay tuned for a lot of stuff we have next year because we really are serious about, like, coming to you and getting your voice and bringing them together with other voices and doing that in a way that, like, is getting eyes on it. And it's not just me writing this newsletter, but it's all of us contributing to this in some way. And if that's something you want to be involved in, again, please email us because yeah. we, we've got a lot of things that we, we talk about and that we're doing. Um, but we really we're really serious about this. Like I, this is, this is my life's work. I could not literally imagine being anywhere else and think about this. It's going to want to make me cry because I'm sappy and whatever, but I'm an Aries, but it's fine. And Oh girl, I'm a cancer. <laughs> I mean, we're going to talk about crying. Cried. I cried. I cried. I cried at the world cup like twice today. Yeah. See, I could like, I just want to, I just want to angry cry. Just be like, oh, I love what I'm doing. Like an aggressive type of, ah, yeah. Kiss you on the forehead. I text my mom all the time because I, I'm, we're recording in my apartment right now. And sometimes I sit here and I look around and I'm like, it's so funny because six, seven year old me, this isn't at all what I thought it would look like, but this is all I wanted. Yeah. This is all I wanted. Um, yes. The, uh, the home that I've cultivated and the people that are in my life who are, I've been in a lot of bad friendships. Like I've, I mean, I really have. Like I'll be straight up about that. I have been with a lot of people who made me feel terrible and who didn't support me and who brought me down. And and my work suffered. Like I couldn't write. Of course, I couldn't write anything good because yeah. I could. I didn't know who I was and I couldn't be that person. And it has really been in the last year, like learning who I am and getting comfortable being that person and getting comfortable being that person here of like Mm. coming out really publicly in a way that like I was out to my friends and family for like five, six years. And then I wrote an article about it. And then suddenly it's like a big thing and realizing that you can do all of that and do it here. And and that I can have these artists who I am amazed by, that I am obsessed with and inspired by, and their work has changed my life. And I get to interact with them in some vague capacity, even if it's just like we follow each other on Twitter. Yeah. Some of them I get to go and have dinner with. And I'm like, how cool is that? This is all I ever wanted. And I'm so happy for you. Because without you having that little like Google 
like trying to figure out what you would call it like in 2018 like we would have never met good folk would have never been like i don't think we would have like found our journeys and our peace with our journeys um in any way shape or form like i quite literally not yet cheesy cannot imagine what my life would be without you and the work of good folk and like all of the new don't make me cry for a third time today <laughs> like in all the new friendships we have forged all the and like every time i see someone follow because i people i have a very small instagram in the sense that i only follow people that i know and then i follow all the artists that i think are really cool at me and some of them started following me back and they said oh my god i like your podcast i <gasps> yeah no every single every no. single time one of you like reaches out or emails i if we're talking about love languages, words of affirmation are my, I have a notebook of where I write down like every single nice thing that is ever said. You know, I write down the mean things too, because yeah, yeah, you got, you got to keep yourself humble, you know, but. Oh, we got our first hate email. Yeah. I want to put it on frame it. I was so excited. (laughs) But it, it really is. It's like, it's just knowing that, you know, some of you have reached out and said, you make me feel less alone and you have really changed my life. And like, I don't even think I can put into words what that means, but I want you all to know, like you've changed my life too. And that's a, that's a mutual transaction. I think any kind of art form and any kind of community work, like there should be a mutual t- transaction, right? Yeah. It shouldn't just be me as this like artist. I'm not even a great artist. Like I'm just a person, but it yeah. shouldn't be me as like, like I idolize people who I think are great artists. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, sometimes that feels like, oh, I'm always just their fan and they just put out all these great things. And I'm just here to like witness in awe. Yeah. And I'm sure that like they get mutual things from that too. Right. Like every artist will talk about, it's the people that appreciate your work that really make it important mm. and worthwhile. And if there weren't people, you know, there could be one person, one person listening to this podcast oh. and I will love you forever. Yes. Like, I don't even care. Like, we'll keep doing it. Like, I recognize yeah. names. There are a lot who... more. Yeah. There are a lot more than one of you. And that's yeah. really beautiful. <laughs> and I'm amazed all the time by, by the words that we get yeah. and the, the interaction that we have. I think familiar names pop yeah. up. Who like constantly like things who like comment things and like oh, yeah we hi. know we know you and we love you and <laughs> and like we want to be your friend so. yes but that's really what it is of like all of us i think come to this work because we had a period somewhere in our life where we felt like we were alone within it and we come to this looking for other people and if all that we ever do here is bring that together that's enough that's it that's i mean uh, not even if all we ever do i mean that's the most important part of mm-hmm. what we do more than anything else because it's having that community and having those people around you and that support that then is going to enable you to go and organize in your community or be an artist or be open about who you are or just feel comfortable with yourself mm-hmm. and those are all the things that are going to change the stories we tell about this place and that are really going to change this place over time and it's not going to be easy it's not going to be fast we're not going to see it in like the next election that suddenly the whole south is super diverse and everybody's really loving or maybe in our lifetime <laughs> yeah no we're probably not even in our lifetime it, i've been t- i've been ta in the last semester and i just finished my first semester of grad school so i can't even i was ta in last semester for a southern studies course and like going back through southern history you realize like we're still living half this stuff we tend to think of it all like it happened in the past yeah and it is still ongoing and it's not going to change in two years and in four years but the work that we put in today will change things down the line and i know that's hard to see and that's hard to recognize and that's part of when we talk about this work feeling so difficult and tireless that is why but it matters and it will make a difference a hundred percent and just looking at what is in the talks for the future of Good Folk and the future of us. Like, it's so exciting to see, you know, because this is the episode that will close out season one, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're tentatively calling it season one. We're, we're yes. taking a break for December. Yeah, um, we tired. I, yeah. <laughs> 
I've got a full-time job and <laughs> been a full-time student on yeah. top of this. So we're going to take December off and um, we'll have a disclaimer for that in the post much earlier. But yeah. we will be back in January and, and we have a lot. Yeah. I love how I'm teasing all this stuff we have up our sleeve. It better all happen because if it doesn't, now I'm going to yeah, look like matter. a fool. That's okay. that's okay. They don't know what Noah will and will happen. So we'll just pretend it's well, We will be back no matter yeah. what with yeah. the podcast in, in yeah. three weeks, four weeks. Yeah. January. January. We'll be back in January. But either way, we're. I'm so excited for the future of us and for where this will go and all the new exciting things and the people that we're bringing in too you know like we talk a lot about this project of like it's just me and you in my apartment like yeah. doing whatever but we, we we're expanding and we're we're bringing these communities in of people who are interested in this work and want to do it and you know we love that and like I'm, we want you involved i'm so excited for all of it that is to come and i think the perfect way to close out is if we have closed out every podcast episode is by asking our guest, which is you today, Spencer, what do you believe in? I mean, the good thing for me is I, I knew this was coming and you know, it's funny. I still don't really have a great answer. <laughs> I think, I think I have to give the answer that I, I often give in response to our podcast guests, which is the name for good folk. And I probably should have said this earlier in the origin story, but it, it came out of this like mantra that I kept repeating to myself when I was so sad, but I was trying to not be. And I, I was really interested in the idea of like hope as this radical force and the world kept, it felt like the world kept trying to prove me wrong on this. Um, and so I would repeat it to myself all the time. I would just walk around and I would say, I, I believe that people are good. I do believe that people are good. And originally that was what the essay collection was going to be titled was, I do believe that people are good. And, and I just would stick with that. And that was where I kind of brought it into the idea of like, I think there are good folks in the world. And I think that I can be one of them and I can find them and I can bring these people together. And so that's, you know, when we had the title of Good Folks Only, which is what our website and Instagram and Twitter is, it's kind of like, yeah, we're this little like club of good folks and people who believe that hope is a radical force and empathy is not easy, but it is the thing we should all choose and that there is good in the world if you're willing to look for it and that we have to love one another and believe that that's possible. Um, and not just for other people, but for ourselves as well. Of For me, it was always really easy to think, oh yeah, there can be good in the world and there can be love in the world, but I don't deserve any of that. Or I can't have any of that. Mm -hmm. Or I can believe there are good people, but maybe I'm a fundamentally bad person. And to reframe that and to, to say, you know, I'm flawed. Of course I'm flawed, we're all flawed. Like no one's ever gonna be perfect. Even now, like years out of being like really deeply depressed, like I still fall into that and I still fall into those patterns. And I think part of it is realizing that like healing both individually and as a region, it's not something that happens overnight, right? And it's not this like clean closed door process. It's not like we heal as a country and suddenly everything is better. Mm -hmm. It's There are always going to be these periods of back and forth. And it's using art and narrative and storytelling and community to work our way through those things. So I really just believe that there are good people in the world. I think, I think we're all good folk, um, all of us, whether you're an artist or not, whether you're in the South or not. I think there is a good folk inside us all. And I just feel really lucky and honored to get to be able to do this and to have these conversations and to interact with these people. I say we have that as like a last thing. <laughs> the way you were looking at me right now, I'm like, God damn. <laughs> if only <laughs> somebody I was on a date with would look at me. I'm in love with you, Spencer George. Oh, you know, plenty of people tell me that, but not a lot of people seem to follow through. So, you well, know. Well, hey. <laughs>
I'm available. <laughs> and I can say lots of nice, inspiring things to you. So, slide into my DMs. Beautiful. Cut that out. <laughs> well, yeah, I figured. <laughs> you have it like the cutout music. And then it goes <laughs> that would be so...